If you don't have a source of the truth rooted in data, there's always going to be differences of opinion on why we're winning, why we're losing, because everyone's operating from their own subset of information. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast by Double Check Research for product marketers and competitive intelligence professionals who are looking to get a leg up on the competition through win loss and churn analysis. I'm your host, Jeffrey Palmer. Today, I am thrilled to be kicking off the second season of Blind Spots, where we are going to explore at a tactical and strategic level what it takes to set up and run a top-tier enterprise win-loss program and how to overcome the many challenges of doing just that. To that end, we have some incredibly talented guests lined up to guide you no matter where you are on your win-loss journey. A lot of you are planning to relaunch or launch a new win-loss program and to that end, you're thinking about where to start. What's the first step going to be? What does the background, the origin of a successful win-loss program look like? We'll be diving into that today, and we couldn't have asked for a better guest to talk to about this. I'm joined by Jonathan Bedard, Senior Vice President of Product Marketing at Bullhorn, and one of the best product marketing practitioners and leaders out there. John will help us understand how to transition beyond the typical tribal knowledge model that so many companies rely on, how to get and keep stakeholder buy-in, how to decide where to focus a win-loss program, how to integrate it with product launches, and last but by no means least, really the why of why a win-loss program is such a critical component of any strategy for staying ahead of the competition. You know, if you could perhaps share with me a little bit about what your core responsibilities are would be a great place to get started. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jeffrey. So I had the product marketing function at Bullhorn. For listeners here, Bullhorn, you know, we're mid-stage private equity backed, you know, SaaS technology company servicing the staffing and recruiting industry. We've been doing it for the better part of 20 years now. We've got the unique position of being an industry leader in my role heading the product marketing function. Um, it plays a really classic role of product marketing, truly sitting at the intersection of product management, sales, and the rest of the marketing organization. I mean, we are directly responsible for how we price, package, and position our products in market, really being thoughtful around the competitive set in evaluating how they're competing against us, how we're competing against them, you know, what are the levers we pull in order to optimize that, and then obviously making sure that our sales team is really on their front foot of being able to bring to life the bullhorn narrative. So I like to say that we're a team of storytellers. We've got about 10 product marketers on the team. And um, you know we cover a fairly wide scope of responsibilities across all things go-to-market strategy. And you know we've been fortunate um, that we've been in heavy launch mode here. So we've, we've launched a lot of new products in, in the, the last three and a half years that I've been here. And you know that's kept us quite busy. Very interesting. And you mentioned that you work with lots of different teams across the organization. What's your sort of understanding of how they understand the value of your role? I think our key stakeholders, whether that's product management, sales, or marketing, really look at product marketing as a function that provides leverage to the business. Really small companies don't really need product marketing or the the capabilities and responsibilities of product marketing often live within a founder or within another executive in the business. 
But all of a sudden, when you start to reach the size that you are really trying to scale your business, and it's not just about, you know, can one or two or three sales reps effectively tell our story? It's about how do I get dozens or hundreds of sales reps in order to tell our story with a high degree of consistency and to truly be compelling in market? You need a team that really understands how to scale, go to market. And one done well, you know, where we provide leverage to sales, leverage to product management, and, and certainly leverage to the rest of the marketing organization. Interesting. When did you first start working on, on win-loss programs? Yeah. So when you think about as a product marketer, hey, we got to write messaging. And you really start to unpack what that means. You really come quickly to realize that in the world we live in today, very few people are doing anything but through paper and pencil anymore. Right? There's a piece of technology that's in place in most organizations, in most industries, to provide some level of leverage and automation. And as a result of that, when you're selling into those organizations, you typically have to displace some incumbent technology. And you know, with the amount of investment going into technology, it's a crowded space. You know you're competing against other folks. And in order for messaging to be good, it has to differentiate yourself from the competition. So you have to take that into account. So I think really quickly into my product marketing journey, I recognize the importance of understanding the competitive landscape. And it wasn't just messaging. It really started to inform all of the levers that we could pull as a product marketer. Why should I update pricing or how do I set pricing? What's my messaging and, and, and what's my positioning in market here? All of that is relative to the alternative that your end buyer can use, right? And if you read all the best practice textbooks today or blog posts on on product marketing, but this is pretty table stakes now. You know, you got to know your competition inside and out and you need to take them into account and in how you go to market. Very cool. So John, tell me a little bit about what was happening in Bullhorn when you came on that led to investing in win-loss. When I came to Bullhorn and really started to assess the state of the product marketing function, but also where the business was at and kind of understanding its competition and the appetite for our leadership and our sellers to really get um, knowledgeable about the competition. What I uncovered was there was a really, really strong understanding of a small subset of competitors that predominantly was passed down through tribal knowledge. When you really try to get to the root cause of why are we winning or why are we losing, or is this messaging going to work? Is it not? And you really try to get to the root cause of, do we really understand how to position or how to price relative to the competition? You encountered a lot of anecdotes. You didn't really feel like there was a strong programmatic approach to answering that question. And as a result of that, it, it, it just really was obvious to me that there was an opportunity to up our game around how we thought about our competitive intelligence program and just do it more rigorously, partner with DoubleCheck, who I previously had experience in working with, and, and just bring those insights to bear on a lot of the decisions that we were making around pricing, packaging, positioning, and, else, and otherwise probably took me the better part of six to 12 months to just really kind of wrap my head around the business and to assess where we're at. And I'm fortunate to have a, a mentor early in my career that said, seek to understand before you're understood, like ask a lot of questions and really assess the state of the business. And we spent a lot of time doing that and arrived at the conclusion that uh, you know a programmatic approach to, to competitive intelligence would, would add a lot of value. 
Very interesting. That's so cool. And you mentioned that, that there was this tribal knowledge. I, I love that uh, idea, sort of tribal knowledge that gets handed down, right? Because it gives you that sense of it sort of being like an oral history, right? That it's verbal, but that people are sort of loyal to it, that, that they have this attachment to it as well, this sort of sense of community. So I think that's a great word to sort of understand um, how people often think about that kind of competitive intelligence. When you were looking at what people knew and didn't know, was your sense that this tribal knowledge was broad? Was it sort of trying to understand that the broad question of winning and losing, or was that tribal knowledge detailed in the sense that people had a sense of we're in this segment, we're against this competitor, here's how we win and lose here? Yeah, it was a mix, um, but it was very spotty. And you had a lot of high level blanket anecdotes, right? Which would say, oh, the, the primary reasons why our buyers drive is usability. The users really inform decision-making, therefore a focus on usability, whether that's messaging, product development, right, is really, really important and should be emphasized over other potential positions that we could take, right? You'd have a lot of anecdotes that, you know, kind of spoke at that high, high level, but then you'd also have these anecdotes around like product capability, right? Oh, in order to beat this competitor, or in order to compete effectively, you need to emphasize these certain technical aspects of the product, right? Um, so you start to get into, there's certain features, right? That are the differentiators where we are more compelling or where we need to be ready to play defense because the competitor is particularly strong in that certain technical area. So you had a lot of anecdotal technical attributes that also were passed down through tribal knowledge and held tight as kind of source of truth for many of the competitors that we competed against. Interesting. Interesting. And sort of when people, you mentioned sort of holding tight to, to some of that tribal knowledge, was it hard to convince people uh, that there was a, a different way, that it didn't have to be tribal, that it didn't have to be anecdotal? You know, I don't think I necessarily sought out to convince people that it didn't have to be that. I think what we started to figure out was that there were certain questions that started to come up in discussions at a leadership level that the anecdotes didn't answer. And I have this expression that, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give credit to Gordon Burns, my boss on this one. He's really fanatical around this idea of, do you really understand the problem you're trying to solve? I think that's a really important question when uh, in all aspects of go to market, but certainly when you're setting out to do any level of win-loss work, because we would encounter uh, discussions where these anecdotes or just open discussions around why we winning, why we losing, or we lost this recent account and we'd start to try to do some diagnosis as to why. And we'd start to uncover that we have an incomplete story. And it started to shine a light on there is a more comprehensive, more detailed way, more programmatic way that we could really try to glean insights into what's really happening around win-loss that would add a ton of value, right? Once you actually share and go through a cycle of actually doing a thorough survey, actually for us, interviews were a game changer where we really started to get out and do these in-depth interviews of folks who either did purchase from us or didn't and learn from that. And you shine a light on those interviews and the findings from those interviews. There's such nuggets of gold in that work that people quickly were like, yeah, absolutely. These findings should inform certain decisions that we're making around go-to-market strategy. So 
all of a sudden, the, the new insights and the new information became the new norm um, and kind of quickly overwrote the tribal knowledge as a source of truth. And I, I didn't have to convince people otherwise. You know, the data spoke for itself. Yeah, of course. Data speaking for itself is, yeah. is sort of the goal, I think, for everybody, right? Where you don't have to be an opinion. You don't have to be finger pointing, right? Yeah. That you can just show them information and have them draw presumably the same conclusions. And you mentioned to, there that you, a little bit about sort of GTM planning. Are there particular areas of, of GTM planning that you think of as improving with, with the win-loss program? Yeah, there's a bunch. You know, we're, we're not a, a company that over-processes go-to-market planning. Um, and I, I think we strike a really nice balance around, we, we're highly disciplined and got best practices in place on how we launch new products. We're so tightly connected with sales and in, in products that it feels less process driven and just more partnership driven in terms of how we work together. But what we've done is really, you know, leverage win loss to one, glean insights on very specific competitors. So one thing that we really started to do was to say, let's not take a broad brush with the win loss work that we're doing. Because when we really start to unpack what's really happening in a sales cycle or what's really happening in the marketplace. We got to some like very specific hypotheses in, in that we either had to go test or questions that we didn't have the answers to. So we have a clear understanding of the problem we want to go solve. Let's go use win-loss in order to inform that problem. But what you'll find is that the insights then drive what to do about it. For example, we've done some work recently where we really honed in on some specific competitors in certain regions. We went and did the interviews on folks who what we won and lost. And we uncovered that the area that we really needed to hone in on was some of our pricing and packaging because we were we were making it overly difficult for some folks to buy from us. And we went back and said, great, let's make the adjustments as necessary here. We, we updated our pricing, we updated our packaging, right? In order to really align with where the market was on these things. And it improved our win rate. The win-loss work was really a mechanism to helping us to solve problems that we and barriers that we were finding in the funnel. You know, and once we were kind of clear on the problem or the barrier that we were seeing, and then use the research to inform what to do about it, we got really good at being pretty nimble on this around how to compete. You know, we could move from insights in hand to updated pricing and packaging, or to updated rewrite the sales presentation and reposition ourselves. When we could move from insights to all of that being done in a month, we could move quite quickly. Um, and we did. We did all of that. You know, we, we launched a new product, for example. And launching a product takes you know, months of preparation from, hey, did you write the message and did you get the naming right? Did you get the pricing and the packaging done? Have you enabled all of sales? Obviously, there's a marketing campaign and push behind it. Months and months of work. We do all that work. And then literally less than six months later, we're doing some win-loss work to try to figure out what's really happening in some of these sales cycles. And we started to un we also started to see that uh, there was a few larger deals that we lost on this new product to a competitor. And we're like, what? What the heck is really going on there? We did some of the win-loss work around it. And we quickly uncovered that our competition was so smart. And they really, they were a step ahead of us on packaging and positioning relative to where the market was going. We just missed the flat out missed the mark. And it led to a lot of internal discussions around, well, what needs to change? And it wasn't just a rewrite the slide deck. It led to product development and other work in order to help us be better positioned. And 
I'd like to think we'd fix that problem now and, you know, are competing much more effectively as a result of it. Very cool. And of course, win-loss is is very close and often owned by uh, competitive intelligence sort of type functions in a business. Um, is there a particular way that you think about um, how win-loss data goes from sort of the, the broad package of information that you have into the hands of salespeople who can then use that information in a competitive scenario? Yeah, I do. We originally started with you know, product marketing does the work and I'll, you know, we partner with product with you and kind of glean all these insights into an executive presentation. And we put all the right stakeholders in a room and we do a big readout and, and, and like, not that that didn't work. Right. But what we actually found is like the organization actually has an enormous amount of appetite to just consume this information on a regular basis. You know, we're constantly doing interviews across a multiple fronts, multiple competitors and regions, and as information's coming in, I share it. So we get we get an interview back, right? And it's a you know half a dozen page document in the words of the customer of why they bought or who else they were considering, what their experience in working with our sales team was. And I'll share that um, that interview with the sales rep, the sales leadership, marketing leadership, product leadership, so they can just read it and they glean a ton of insights from it. Uh, obviously, you want the summary because you got to be careful not to overreact to just one or two interviews. And you know, it typically takes you know anywhere between eight to twelve before you feel like you know you really kind of see a pattern that starts to emerge, and you feel like you've got you know the right insight to act on. But you know, we found that sharing as we get the information and then just a short summary. You know, we've done the whole, let's walk through 30 slides and we're like, no, let's actually just like boil it down to less than 10 with a clear recommendation on what are we going to do differently as a result of the insights that we're learning. Um, It resonates. And we also found that people just really kind of want to read the raw, the raw feedback. But we, we found that, you know, just sharing the voice of the customer with key stakeholders is incredibly powerful. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you mentioned that your competitors were were smart as well. When you think about uh, sort of smart competitors, what, what do you think makes them smart, and and how do you sort of experience that in a competitive you know buying scenario? Yeah, I, great question, Bullhorn. You know, we have the pleasure and the responsibility of being an industry leader. It's a position we've earned. It's also a position that we don't take lightly. You know, we recognize that. Staying humble and staying hungry is is really critical for our success. As a marketer, I really appreciate and and study a lot of these smart competitors and the ways in which they're going about you know really trying to tell their stories and position themselves against us. And you know, I think you know to that end, we work really hard to to make sure that we are one constantly watching them and not taking them lightly and making sure that we're being really smart on how we're competing against them. Like making sure that our sales team really understands who they are, understands our differences, has a way of positioning ourselves in order to be competitive, to help the customer to appreciate what we do uniquely different and better than what they do, to be ready right for any potential areas where they might be stronger and that we need to be ready to respond and to help the customer to understand what we can do. I'd love to go back briefly. I'm going to go back to tribalism again here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when you're sort of thinking about that tribal knowledge, 
Um, I think you also described some of it as, as anecdotal. When you had those sort of pockets of tribal knowledge that sort of handed down, did, did everybody in the organization still sort of subscribe to the same sets of tribal knowledge? Did they subscribe to the same anecdotes or perhaps the, the different parts of the organization have a different understanding of why winning and losing and, and what the market needed and packaging, pricing, all those things? Yeah, look, if, if, if you don't have a source of the truth rooted in data, there's always going to be differences of opinion on why we're winning, why we're losing, because everyone's operating from their own subset of information. You know, if you are the sales leader who covers a particular region and segment of accounts, right, you're going to naturally have recency bias specific to your region and your subset of accounts. You know, there might be different industry dynamics or competitive dynamics in that region of the world or in that particular industry or subsegment of the market, right? So you're going to have your set of experiences. You know, when you're talking about a global company, you know, with hundreds of sellers, how do you actually arrive at source of the truth? And you have to take a programmatic approach there. You have to take a segmented approach there. You know, if you were to put half a dozen, 10 people in a room and saying, this competitor's eating our lunch. Why is that? And what do we do about it? You're going to get half a different different opinions on the reason why and what we should do about it. You know, there's often not consensus. What you got to be careful of is often the default when you don't have a source of the truth on really identifying what's happening is you end up just like tallying up all the consensus. You're like, okay, so we've got a product problem. We've got a pricing problem. We've got a positioning problem and we've got a sales enablement problem. Everybody in alignment on that. And they're like, yep. So all of a sudden you're like, I need to fix all of that, right? That's a lot to fix. It's an enormous amount of work. And often it's very rarely that. It's very rare that you got every single thing wrong. Um, It's often one or two of those things and really figuring out which one of those two levers that you need to pull is really, really important. And the only way to do that is to be really diligent about how you get to source of the truth. Interesting. And interesting. And so when you had you had all those folks, you got all those people in the room and you know that they have different ideas uh, for why things are happening. You're, you're bringing in a win-loss program, of course, to address some of that. How did you go about bringing them into a win-loss program? How did you go about making sure that you understood what what they needed to get out of the program and that they were bought into the program in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's not a hard sell because they're already investing an enormous amount of resources to try to figure out how to compete and win. And if they're thinking, well, can product marketing provide me with help and leverage of being successful in doing that? They're going to say yes all day. You got to establish a trusted partnership there and relationship. Like you need to have a relationship where sales is going to look at you and say, I trust that you're going to be able to deliver high quality work and that your incentives are aligned with my incentives and we're in this together. Now, in my opinion, you're not a good product marketer if you're not doing that, right? That to me is table stakes, right? But that has to be in place. It's absolutely in place at Bullhorn, right? We're very fortunate that across the team, we've got a fantastic relationship with our sales teams. When we come to them with insights in hand on here's what we've learned. I mean, they want to read it. They want to see the interviews. They are absolutely want to take those learnings and and make sure all of us as a team are getting better here together. 
So and when you were launching your program, you've already got people bought in, as you described, that they're sort of invested in this information anyway. Um, were there any challenges that you had when you, when you started trying to launch the program the first time? When you set out to launch the program, the big thing that you got to really think hard about is what's the scope I'm taking on to begin with. And I'll actually say in hindsight, we, we went through a couple iterations on this. And the first one, we didn't hit the mark entirely. We took too broad of a brush. You know, we did a fairly generic survey on trying to identify uh, buying drivers. And we tried to cover kind of all regions, all segments. And the survey lacked, because we the scope was so wide in terms of the segments we were going after, the depth of the questions that we were asking was, was fairly low because it was a bit generic. And that the survey insights that came back were not that compelling. Now, in parallel to that, we did a lot of interviews um, as well as the survey. The interviews really, we learned a lot of good insights through the interviews, you know, but what, what that initial survey did uncover was it did start to shine a light on the competitors we're seeing most often in different regions and with what level of frequency. And very quickly, we started to pivot from surveys to more interviews and then from taking a broad all segments, all regions approach to much more tailored kind of what are the problems we're really trying to solve. And we quickly honed in on narrowing in on very specific regions, very specific segments, and you know certain competitors. We've been running the program for the better part of the last two years and with that scope in mind, and, and it's been very well received. Very cool. What was it easy to go out and get targets for the program based on, on that criteria? What, what made it something a good target for you? You know, I think there's always a little bit of a challenge on, is my CRM data clean? And, you know, there's a bit of an administrative task of kind of working with sales in order to get approvals or not. And, you know, I think we've streamlined that process now that we've been doing this for a while. I'd say it was a little bit clumsy at first in like, we pulled some long CRM data lists and the, the, the data itself just wasn't that clean. So it took us a while to get to a point where we could kind of really be efficient in how we went from like list to accuracy to actually then starting the process of reaching out to accounts. And the good thing is once you go, once you actually go through it once or twice with sales, show the value of the program, their willingness to say, yes, I want my accounts in this program, or here's the contact information for my account. Yes, it's accurate. Dramatically goes up, right? Because they they recognize the value of, I'm going to get this incredibly insightful interview back. Um, and that's valuable. And obviously, same thing with sales leadership, where you, know, you got to have buy-in from sales leadership to the program where they see the value in it, because they're going to be the ones who are holding their teams accountable to actually providing the information or certifying the information is accurate. We had that right from the get-go. That was never an issue for us. Once we got up and running, and we've been doing it now for a while, it, it's, it goes off without a hitch. You mentioned that salespeople sometimes want to get their, their candidates into these programs. Do, do all the salespeople read all of your reports? What, what's your sense of when they get distributed? What's the sort of uptick? Yeah. I mean, I don't measure it, but... I do get a lot of feedback, so I certainly don't share every report with every sale with every seller. Um, we've got a lot of sellers, 
All right. But say, for example, a particular competitor that we are focusing on, um, and we've got 10 interviews on wins and losses, right? I'll share those 10 interviews with kind of the, the leadership and management ranks of the sales team in the regions where we are competing against those competitors. And that's often the kind of the homework assignment to a, a discussion to be had on. So given what we've learned, what are we going to do about it? Right. So that typically I'll share it with the rep as well. You know, this was your deal. You know, here's the, you know, here's the interview and you should read it and learn from it. And it's a look in the mirror for them. I think great sales reps just love this stuff because they're constant. I mean, the great sales reps always want to get better. They're always honing their crafts. We're fortunate at Bullhorn. We've got many of them, right? They want the feedback. I think they read those reports and it helps them to go, is my impression of why I lost the same as what the account's actually saying in the interview? Is there anything in there that surprises me? So I think they value it. And how about some of the other folks in the organization? You mentioned product marketing being that linchpin between marketing, product marketing, and sales. When you think about the findings, when you think about trying to use the win-loss data in some way, what's your what's your expectation? What's your thinking on how product managers will pick it up? How would the marketers consume this? I think there's a lot of use cases. Let's start with marketing, right? So product marketing is kind of the most upstream part of marketing, right? We've used the win-loss and we've updated our packaging, pricing, messaging, right? And, and maybe some other levers. That all becomes information that our demand generation team and our content team is using. Because when they are thinking about like, what's the copywriting that I'm putting on my website? Or what's the next blog post that we need to write? Or what's the next webinar series that we need to run? They absolutely need to have an understanding of how our positioning is written and our messaging is written in a certain way that is differentiating itself from the competition, right? So when they're choosing words, I have this silly expression that folks in Bullhorn poke fun at me about. I say words matter. And like how you actually translate these findings to words. You know, the product team obviously thinks of it quite different from marketing, but you know, similar thing. I mean, they're looking in those reports to figure out like, you know, is there any reason we're losing here for that's driven by the product? You know, product always has the challenge of figuring out how to prioritize their investments and their roadmap. It's a really, really hard challenge. There's a lot of inputs that go into that why we win and why we lose needs to be one of them. And if we are losing, right, due to our product being suboptimal, right, or lacking in certain capabilities, and that is actually causing us to lose, and it's coming through in those loss reports, product wants to know about it, you know? And we've done, we've honed in on, hey, we have a hypothesis that says we're losing because we lack this technical capability. We will ask a very specific question. In our, in our interviews around that to try to either prove or disprove that hypothesis. We had a lengthy discussion just two weeks ago in a very senior leadership meeting. I mean, CEO, president of the company, CMO. I mean, our whole senior leadership team is in the room and we're having a discussion around, do we need to make an investment in a certain area of our product in order to win in a very specific market relative to what the, we're seeing against our competition? And if so, to what extent and how do we approach that investment from a buy-build partner perspective? I mean, that is the utmost strategic conversation that you could have, right, around corporate and product strategy. And the win, I could 
felt confident in being able to go in and said, we've spoken to enough people that here is my perspective on whether a product gapped or not is actually preventing us from winning or losing. Yeah, very cool. It must be very compelling to be able to go in there with, with data, with, with charts, to share that kind of information. Do you find that they respond well to, to those types of presentations? Well, it's, I, I, I don't even have to show the data. I just spoke to it. It was just a discussion. There's no presentation. It was an open discussion with half a dozen senior leaders in the business around what do we do about this? I mean, that's the prompt, right? Hey, it seems as though we're losing in this region. There's this open question on whether it's for this reason. What do people think about that? Like I had a tangible takeaway to go speak to customers to figure out what's really going on there. So I shared my findings. Here's my findings. We spoke to this many people. Here's what we're learning. And as a result, this is my recommendation. And others chimed in. Well, what about this? What about that? And I said, well, we actually didn't really hear that in the interviews. You know, as a result, that's why we're leaning in this direction. And it was just a very informative conversation. We arrived at a conclusion, right? Everyone was like, I'm on board with that. And we moved on. It's almost like you do all this work and you put together all these charts to get really clear on what the answer is. And then, you know, you know, a few months of work and a, a lot of preparation turns into just a high quality 15 minute conversation. And to me, that is like an optimal outcome for that piece of work. Right? That's exactly what we're aiming to achieve is like get to an answer that we all buy into. What a lovely way to get to, you know, that, that 15 minute conversation several months of work, then you have a 15 minute conversation and people are sort of just nodding their heads and agreeing. It sounds like a lot of folks have started to see a lot of value in your win-loss program. Have you seen the meaningful, measurable results from having this, this win-loss program? Yeah, I have. Voice to the customer matters. It's you know really figuring out you know how not to get caught in that trap of just trying to seek answers out from within the company, but actually go speak to the folks prospects, customers, and really hear from them to try to inform strategies. So for me, voice of the customer is you know kind of sacred in how we think about product marketing and answering so many of these strategic questions. With that being said, absolutely, we've gotten some really, really good results. So you know, one of the win-loss programs we had against a very specific competitor in a very specific region, you know, where we really went in and studied them and said, you know, we're losing. And we knew we were losing because we could see it in our data. Uh, we didn't really have a good understanding of why, you know, so we ran the win-loss play, did the interviews, came back with the findings. Up, this is the example I gave before, updated our pricing, updated our packaging, basically kind of relaunched, you know, how we told the Bullhorn story in that market and really enabled customers to buy from us. And we saw our win rate double. I mean, it's a phenomenal result. Everyone here knows that win rate is a super sensitive measure. And, you know, if I can get five or 10% improvement in win rate, it moves the needle. We doubled our win rate, um, right? It was, it was pretty low, right? But we doubled our win rate and now it's in a very favorable spot, you know? So we're winning significantly more than we're losing now, you know, and the team by and large is feeling confident in it. It's had a measurable impact. That's amazing. Doubling. Wonderful. Um, you mentioned earlier that you've gone through a few cycles with your win-loss program. What changes do you make and, and how do you go about getting information from folks about the program focus and other ways of improving a program that really makes that sort of cyclical approach sort of an iterative improvement? The, the key to 
really making win-loss impactful is really being clear on the problem you're trying to solve. You know, but what often happens when you set out to do win-loss work is you're not entirely clear on exactly the problem you're trying to solve, right? You're simply feeling I'm blind in certain areas to why we're winning and why we're losing. So you often throw kind of a wide net around trying to survey or interview in order to get smarter around kind of general topics on buying behavior and criteria and so forth, competitive makeup set. And what ends up happening is you go through a cycle, you learn, you start to use that data also to start to hone in on, are there actually things emerging from the data that are worrisome or that kind of start to inform those like second tier, third tier questions that you start to ask? In addition to that, I think, you know, just, you know, good product marketing where you are tightly aligned with sales, tightly aligned with product, and you're having the right discussions on a regular basis around really what's happening in the sales cycle here, or what are we hearing? What are we learning? And you start to actually have a discussion at a level of detail that also starts to shine a light on a potential problem area or an anecdote that's a bit concerning. And that's where you can go, oh, well, I've got a lever that I can pull here in in our win-loss program in order to flush that out further, in order to get smarter on that, to figure out whether it is an anecdote or if it's a trend. And I think, you know, when you get into that pattern and you can really be crisp on the problem statement and what you're looking to learn, it allows you to continually iterate your win-loss program. And I think it becomes more impactful as a result of it. And for us, that's certainly been the case. You know, we've gotten kind of smarter and smarter at the questions we're asking and using win-loss to help answer those questions. And I think I think we've got a good thing going right now as a result of it. Yeah, sounds like you do. Very cool. I have uh, one more question for you about your win-loss program. And this is a pretty broad question. Uh, but if you were to restart your whole win-loss journey there at Bullhorn. Is there anything particular that you think of that you would do differently? Hmm, that's a good question. Let me think. <laughs> what would I do differently? You know, I think it, it, it's kind of piggybacks off the last comment I just made. My advice for folks who are thinking about starting a win-loss program is, you know, start small. Like, or don't be afraid to start small. You know, don't be afraid to say, I think a lot of times when people think of a win-loss program, the word program actually is a little bit scary, right? All of a sudden you're like, oh, it's a program. That means I need to have significant resourcing against it. That needs it, it needs to become this big goal that ends up on my corporate scorecard or my, my team's scorecard. And while that might be true over time where it, it kind of gets elevated in stature, I think you can start small. I think you can really say, you know, there is something that I just don't feel smart about and I need to get smarter on that. And I think you can go from, you know, from not feeling smart to 10 interviews completed and significantly smarter with an understanding in a very short period of time. You know, that's where, that's where we've gotten today. I mean, we've gotten to the point today where I'll be in, you know, discussions with leadership or with sales and I'll start to hear a theme emerge. Right. Where I'm like, oh, there might be a problem here. I will literally shoot off a note to Julie, you know, my partner here over a double check and say, I want to spin up half a dozen or 10 interviews to go answer this question, right? To figure out if we can get smarter on it. And, and like we can move from like 
that's a problem to program activated to getting smarter in weeks. You know, so my, my advice for folks would be to don't be afraid to start small. Don't be afraid to be iterative. Right. I think over time it could blossom into something that's large and programmatic and, you know, with, with massive amounts of visibility across the business, but it doesn't have to start there. I think you, as you prove your value along the way with the information and insights that you're bringing to the business, you're often going to actually see more demand for it internally. I mean, I've had people come to me and saying, Hey, I've got a question I want to answer. Can we partner with you and your research team to go solve this? You know, when that happens and I'm getting pulled in that way, you know, I know that it's like in the water at that point, right? It's just like that is now how we run our business, right? It's not a special program on the side, right? It is core to how we run our business, to how we answer questions, to how we get some scale. Yeah, don't be afraid to start small. Wow, really cool. I love that. It, there's, there are a lot of folks I think out there who are, trying to figure out how do they push this stuff to, to their team. I have one more, yeah. one more question here. Um, and this doesn't have to be about win-loss at all, but from your career in particular, um, I think our listeners might love to hear um, what's one thing that you would recommend everybody do uh, in their career and what's perhaps a mistake that you might've made that you tell everybody to avoid? For me, it would be, don't be afraid to try roles and to take on opportunities that might be outside of the area that you originally think of yourself as in. You know, I personally started my career in finance. Um, I was on a capital markets desk, saw Wall Street collapse on itself um, and realized what I didn't want to do. Jumped to business development. From business development, jumped to chief of staff role. Chief of staff role led to running an inside sales team, to pursuing, to, to helping to build a product marketing function, and now ultimately to uh, running a product marketing function, helping a business scale it rapidly, right? And I think all along that journey, if you were to ask my, you know, if I look back on it and said, would those have been, would that have been your career trajectory in the path that you would expect to take? I would say absolutely not. You know, I was very fortunate to have a lot of great mentors along the way and got a bit lucky in choosing companies that, you know, happened to achieve enormous growth along the way. But, you know, all in all, you know, really sought out opportunities where I can make a difference, be a part of the solution uh, in helping organizations grow, helping organizations change. And it's just one opportunity led to another. So I would just encourage people to be open-minded um, and don't be afraid to take a leap in an area that you might not think of yourself today. Thank you everybody for listening. And I hope you were as interested as I was to hear John's take on his win-loss program's origins and the rest of Borhorn's win-loss journey. If you like this content and want to hear more stories and best practices from the best in the business, please consider subscribing and don't be shy about leaving us a review. Next episode, we're going to be talking to Evis Lieben of Gong about building the foundations of a win-loss program. So make sure you tune back in. Thank you again for listening. 